Well, there's, there's what I had planned this morning, and then there's what I let go yesterday afternoon to write what you're about to hear. I really did toss everything out the window yesterday afternoon and start it again on Pentecost Sunday. This morning is an invitation for all of us to enter into a season of life-giving pivots, life-giving pivots, as the wind of the Holy Spirit moves and blows and captures our attention and imagination yet again around race relations. It's been a difficult week. The death toll from coronavirus surpasses 100,000. 40 million people have filed for unemployment in the last two months. And I guess as if that's not enough, the tragic death of George Floyd in Minneapolis. His death has turned our republic upside down again and been the flashpoint for an issue that is hundreds of years old and been with us since the inception of our country. And I'd like to talk about that this morning on Pentecost Sunday as a life-giving pivot moment. I'm not really sure if this is testimony, story, teaching, sermon, exhortation. I I don't know. A little bit of grace would be grateful. There's probably a little bit of all of that in in these moments we share. Some of you may agree. Some of you may have moments where you scratch your head, and some of you may disagree. I get that. I really do. But please, would you resist the temptation to tune out and listen? And I recognize that 30 years of a journey that I'll share with you in 10 or 15 minutes doesn't give you time to catch up to the way in which I've processed this, I pastorally understand that. I just ask that you would listen this morning. We need the wind of the Holy Spirit to blow mightily for these life-giving pivots towards equality for all people. So life-giving pivot number one, why I'm an anti-racist. The text for this morning is simple. It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 20. It's just five verses, or five words. And in the Hebrew language, it's only three words. Justice. Justice you shall pursue. Moses writes to the people as they stand on the border and the verge of entering into the promised land, the holy land. In the Hebrew language, it's not five words, it's two words. It's tzedek, tzedek, tirdof. Tzedek, tzedek, tirdof. Justice, justice, you shall pursue. I graduated about this time of year in 1980, and I know some of you are doing the math. I was 17 years old. I graduated with honors of my own sort. I didn't graduate cum laude or magna cum laude or summa cum laude. I graduated with thank you, Lottie, and I got myself out of there 
but I was looking for the future. I had no idea what was in store. My growing up years were in a distant northwest suburb of Chicago. It was devoid of much of the city crimes and racial tensions. I can remember as a boy hearing about Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X and the Black Panthers on the radio on WGN. My mom would play it every morning as we ate breakfast and got ready for school. But to me, as a boy in a suburb of Chicago, Chicago might as well have been another country. Sure, we drove monthly to my grandparents' home on my mom's side. They lived, in, they lived on the south side of Chicago. My grandparents' names were Fred and Virginia Seavers. Yeah, we loaded into our green Chevy Impala station wagon to make the track. Three young, precocious, rambunctious, aggressive boys sitting in a back seat for an hour and a half. Well, you know how that went. We would pass through the city like a train being taken to another country that I was just observing from outside my window. And I have to admit, I was a bit, it was a bit unnerving because the radio and TV news were in my mind. This was a strange land. I didn't trust it. I only heard about how many deaths in the city the night before. The statistics every morning for 17 years. The racial tensions that I knew nothing about and could experience very little. I didn't know what to do with all of it. I gotta be honest. So I did what any 10-year-old boy would do to pass the time and not sure what to do with his emotions. I tried to take a nap. It would certainly pass the time faster and we'd arrive at my grandparents, have a wonderful visit. Then I'd get back in the car and try to take another nap. Unless, of course, one of my brothers started fidgeting with me and irritating me. And then, of course, other things would transpire. But I just remember taking a lot of naps because I didn't know how to reconcile my life with what I saw and heard on a regular basis. My hunch is many of us still operate like that when it comes to this topic. We take naps. Oh, of course, we don't really do it, but metaphorically, we perhaps may. After graduating from high school, my parents dropped me off in another country for college. 1980, September. The name of that distant land was Minnesota. Minneapolis, Minnesota, a small Christian school on the northeast side of the city. Dawn and I met a year later and graduated. Dawn lived there her entire life growing up, and we spent four great years there together. We moved back to another Chicago suburb where I did my master's degree, got started in ministry. And five years later, we returned to Minneapolis, now this time with our first daughter, Jessica, in tow. And we lived there for 10 years before moving to our third other country, Seattle. But for those 10 years in ministry in Minneapolis, we lived in Richfield, Minnesota. Ah, the land of 10,000 lakes, 
and 10 zillion mosquitoes. Fortunately, the winters were cold enough to get rid of them, but they always seemed to find their way back in the springtime. The summers were hot and humid. The winters, most winters, beyond being chilled to the bones. Last night, as Don and I ate a later dinner, we watched images from Minneapolis on Nicollet and 31st Street, and we were kind of blown away because for the 10 years that we lived in Minneapolis, we lived not on Nicollet and 31st, we lived on Nicollet and 64th. A mere 30 blocks, 31 blocks away from what we saw unfolding on our TV. It was very surreal. It was very emotional. There were tears and there wasn't much talking. I tried to take a nap so I could sleep through it, but I couldn't. You know what? None of us ought or should or can. I remember while I was on staff at that church, Hope Presbyterian, hearing our mission pastor at the time talk about the plight of the Native Americans who we displaced to gain access to the land we now call our home. Yeah, we displaced indigenous peoples, the first peoples. And I recall at the time hearing that as about a 30-year-old, honestly, I'd never heard that narrative before, and I even was a bit offended. I didn't know what to do with that kind of information. Others on my staff were verbally upset, and they pushed back. And I, as a, new, a newbie, knew how to toe the line. I mean, after all, I had a family of three now to feed. I kept quiet. Anytime the subject came up, both then and thereafter, Yet I never forgot that conversation, those early days and exchanges, the dynamic, the tension between competing narratives. They were memorable, and they began a transformational journey in my own life. My time there led me to places outside of the country, many impoverished places, to work in New Mexico with the Navajo Indian to work in the Bahamas at a Christian school, to travel to Nairobi and teach at Daystar University. I began to see what life outside of a suburb really looked like. It didn't reconcile with the history that I had been taught, the narratives that were ingrained into my church mind about how we got to this place. My theology, especially my theology, began to shift. John 3.16, for all people. The Great Commission, for all people. The notion that the gospel message of Jesus Christ is open to all people. Not just the cleaned and tidied, good-looking white Americans who started this whole thing. There were times when we were in Nairobi when I understood to a, a ridiculously tiny degree what it was like to be watched. I mean, after all, Don and I as white folk in a sea of black faces, we were looked at. 
And Dawn, especially with her ble- ble- bleach blonde hair and her popping blue eyes. We were celebrities, but it was unnerving to a degree. Because of my own narrative of what the other looked like. I remember in that same staff meeting with very thoughtful people talking about things like, oh, I'm not a racist. Oh, I'm colorblind. Those two phrases and words never really sat right with me in my gut, but I couldn't put words around why that was the case. And we as a staff started, we didn't get very far, to explore privilege. Why didn't we get very far? Those three words were more. Hey, don't go there. More white folks were offended. I kept quiet. I knew my role. I was just the youth pastor. But I never let it go. It was more than a thawing of my theological lens, and I couldn't sleep through it, no matter how much I wanted to or how much I felt like I was being asked unintentionally to sleep through what I didn't understand. Well, we moved from Minneapolis to Seattle. This time there were five of us in tow, most of us kicking and screaming. Another new country. And I continued to learn much about diversity and multiculturalism and the plight of black people and Latinos and Asians, first peoples and LGBTQ and I folks, the undocumented. I learned a lot about Pacific Islanders and even women's plight in ministry. The world was quick changing so quickly, and I needed taller theological scaffolding. I became friends with a a great black theologian from Seattle Pacific University, Tally Hairston. I became good friends with Pat, Lena, and Margot Thompson, and I believe you've met Lena, if not all three, already. Three Pacific Islander women doing ministry in an urban context. I heard and I began to unpack privilege. I heard, I learned, and I began to unpack not a racist. I heard, I learned, and I began to unpack color blindness. I heard, I learned, and I began to unpack what it means to not have fear in any way, shape, or form. I began to learn and dive in and unpack most folks' discomfort when they hear that kind of language. When I would talk about this in a sermon or two, the response was always the same. I'm offended. I'm not a racist. There would be defensiveness and anger. Sometimes a letter on occasion would be written. And in a few instances, people would just leave the church. I got to tell you, it just troubled me greatly. How do we have a conversation about important things when that's the expectation? It troubled me. It still does today when it happens. I learned to keep those moments far and few between. After all, I now had a family of five to feed like everyone else. I felt like we were all asked to take a nap. 
I moved to another country, Orange County. Just the two of us this time, again. Well, maybe two and a quarter. Maddie was on her way to college. The other two were already gone. Seemingly more of the same, despite the fact that white folks compromise only 30% of the demographic in our local area, I began to notice a pattern. I felt like most of the churches that I served want to domesticate staff so we don't talk about the things that must and ought and should be talked about. Why rock the boat? We all got to earn a living, don't we? I'll just go take a nap. Then, this week, in Minneapolis, it's not a new story. It's simply the latest installment of a long, drawn-out horror movie. What's really hard for Don and I is to remember that we've driven those streets. I know those places. I have a friend who didn't go home one night because it was too close to his house. A young man I married just last summer with his wife. How to make any sense of all this in a time of pandemic, nonetheless. We all, we all have friends who are black and not free of fear. Even really good friends who don this stage, usually. And to have conversations with those folks. breaks the heart. So today, I, you know, sadness. I'm sad. A little bit of anger, but more sadness and grief. Tears. Len said he was just exhausted about the same old narratives. Too much to say, too little time, here's my best attempt. The writer of Deuteronomy writes, justice, justice you shall pursue. Five English words, three in Hebrew, tzedek, tzedek, tirdof. Justice, justice you shall pursue. The curiosity in the text is the repetition of the word justice. I heard a rabbi in Minneapolis yesterday speak on this because I was thinking of throwing everything out I just couldn't figure out in eight hours, how to reorganize and reset and what to say and what not to say. I thought, ah, that's it. That was simple enough of a tutorial. Thank you, God. He further talked about the Midrash's understanding of this text. The first justice is about letting the law run its course in the crime and consequence, and I'm all for that. We have an investigative and judicial process. It'll take time to work. So calm in the meantime, please. The first justice is also about grief. It's about lament. It's about tears for the loss of life. The life of George Floyd and the humankind long struggle against racism and discrimination of all shapes and sizes. And those who are exhausted about the same narrative repeating over and over and over and over again. Well, I can handle that. No disagreements there, I'm, so, I'm sure, so far. 
But the second usage, justice you shall pursue. Justice you shall pursue. That's a bit more nuanced. It is a justice you shall pursue in order that when you enter a new land, a new country, a new space, you will, li- you will live well with one another. And that's what I'd like to explore this morning. Because we still haven't been able to do this in our race relations. Especially since our country was built around slavery and racism and privileged power. Ah, we prefer to take a nap. Now the, ruffle, the feathers start to ruffle. <laughs> Before I go much further, how about a definition? A definition, or at least the one I found on my iPhone dictionary. Racism. One, a belief, a doctrine that inherent differences among various human racial groups determine cultural and individual achievement, usually involving the idea that one's own race is superior and has the right to dominate others, or that a particular racial group is inferior to others. Two, a policy, system of government, etc. like to hear the definition of etc., based upon or fostering such doctrine to discriminate, three, hatred or intolerance of another race or other races. That's, a ra- that's racism. But what is a racist? A racist is a person who believes in racism, the doctrine that one's own racial group is superior or that a particular racial group is inferior to others. So theologically, Our response to those two would be ruffling no feathers and a resounding no. No to racism. No to being a racist. Why? Genesis 1-1, or Genesis chapter 1, we're created in the image of God, equal, male and female. Galatians 3.28, there is no Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. My friends, so far so good, I imagine. At least that's my hope and my best guess. But here's now where it gets a bit more nuanced. What is the opposite of being a racist? Take a deep breath. Inhale the Holy Spirit, exhale. Exhale defensiveness and consider perhaps the opposite of being a racist is not, not a racist, nor is it color blindness. Why? Because it creates a false category that is an excuse for inaction. by people who are called to justice you shall pursue. And when Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. You see, the opposite of racism and racist isn't not a racist 
or color blindness, that just creates a category for all of the rest of us who are called to justice you shall pursue to do what I did as a kid and take a nap. Sleep it away. Get back home as quick as I can because it's maybe safer there. Well, now a few ruffles, a few feathers may be ruffled. Stay with me, please, and consider this on Pentecost Sunday, a day when the winds blow in different and profound ways. But what about peaceful protest? Yes, I say yes, theologically. Kneeling under a bridge, praying like some have done in Minneapolis this week and around the country. Of course, nonviolent protests are a big yes for us. Injustice you shall pursue. But what about violent protests? My friends, what about violent protests after hundreds of years of peaceful protest? Does there ever come a moment in time when violence is then okay? In principle, I say no. Theologically. Especially when there's evidence that it's not the peaceful protesters who may be rioting and inciting the violence, although the jury is still out on that. I definitely say no to violence and looting and damage to life and property and disrespect of police and fires. And the list is long and large. I can't get it all in in two minutes. I say no to rioting in the streets. But is it really that simple? This is where it gets nuanced. Yesterday I listened to a podcast between Mark Laberton, president of Fuller Seminary in Pasadena, and the Reverend Dr. Dwight Radcliffe, Jr., a black professor of intercultural studies at Fuller Seminary. Dr. Radcliffe said this, and I got a little defensive because <laughs> I wasn't quite sure. But it makes sense, he said this. Black people have been peacefully protesting since 1916, and look how far we've gotten towards equality. He said, after all, Jesus eventually overturned tables. It was righteous anger that overturned those tables. We've sung it in a song lyric many times. He went on to say, this nation won their independence from Britain through violent means and displacing indigenous folks and building it on the backs of African Americans. Perhaps, perhaps on Pentecost Sunday, this national scene is the blowing of the wind toward a life-giving pivot, equality for all people made in the image of God. Now, I don't pretend to have all the answers, or any for that matter. But it is beyond time for us to become anti-racists at least and resist the temptation to take a nap. Earlier this week, Len and I exchanged a series of texts and phone calls, some of which were on this topic and I asked his permission to share some of them with you. I, I texted him, I think initially, and I just I apologized to him for what was unfolding and anytime this happens, I do that. 
I felt embarrassed. I felt sad. And I, I texted to him, Len, I love you, man, but I got nothing. It was an honest answer at the time, but it really bugged me. <laughs> I don't get paid to have nothing. I had to have something. Just something. I felt so ashamed, almost embarrassed by such a sophomoric response. But I couldn't put words around all these things I was thinking. We talked some more on the phone later. He said, he said, if I, Len, he said, if Len was George Floyd, people at PPC would want justice, or at least I hope they would. And I agreed wholeheartedly. I know I would. I'd probably be do, doing more than peacefully protesting for my brother in Christ, Len Plick. In fact, I went on to think in my mind later, if George Floyd was a white man, we probably wouldn't even have this conversation. Or if I was George Floyd, I wouldn't even probably been put to the ground. Because black men and women in the United States are 21% more likely to experience a run-in with the law than white folk. Now, I'm not against police and first responders. I love them. I know them. And firefighters, we need them. My call with Len, i got to tell you, was a life-giving pivot for me. It was the realization that for most of my life, I lived in the colorblindness model and the not-a-racist model. And it was a soft form of racism. Because I didn't have the guts and the courage to stand up and say no. I wanted to, but for some reason I didn't feel like I was given the permission to do that. And now that my kids are gone, <laughs> it's time to come clean. Uh-uh. I challenge us today to consider a life-giving pivot PPC to become anti-racists. Because of course we're all going to say, I'm not a racist. We're all going to say no to racism. We're all going to say no to being racist. But for far too long we've said, I'm just colorblind. I'm not a racist. And that's that middle ground of inaction. An anti-racist is someone who by thought and word and deed stands in the way of racism and racists toward anyone that's being discriminated against. Will you just consider with me, thank you for hanging on, this move and shift Will you allow the wind of the Holy Spirit to enter in with a provocation that may be holy and from God? So let me be clear. Justice 
justice you shall pursue. I say no to racism. I say no to violent rioting. I say no to being a racist. I say no to not a racist. I say no to color blindness. I say yes to Tzedek Tzedek Tirdov. I say yes to peaceful protest. I say yes to anti-racism. I say yes to equality of every kind for every person, everywhere, for all times. I say yes to the Holy Spirit arriving in fresh new ways that lead us to discover together what this means in our present day context. I say yes to waking up from a nap. I say yes to welcoming the Holy Spirit in our midst in new and powerful and windy ways. I say yes to justice. Justice you shall all pursue. Lord, in your mercies, hear our prayers.